Good evening, and welcome to the Cabinet of Fever Dreams. Tonight's a tale of virtual reality, science, and everyone's favorite egg-shaped academic. This is the fourth chapter of Professor Egghead's Metaverse Adventure, read to you by me, Mike Jesus Langer, and presented with musical backing by Carl Casey, The Dark Side of Music, and Petra Mardian. If you want to catch up on all of the chapters of the novella, make sure to pop by this corner of the internet again in a few days. New episodes of The Cabinet of Fever Dreams come out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Also, if you want to help the show get cozy with the many-armed spider god of the algorithm, please consider rating us 5 stars on Spotify or leaving an iTunes review. The internet is a cruel place for small content creators and every little bit of engagement helps. With all that said, put on your VR headset and make sure it's snug. It won't be coming off for a while. My eyes are closed, but I can see. Far, far away, I can see the rough outlines of a man. My eyes are closed, but memory fuels my vision. There's a soft fretted carpet beneath the bare feet of that man. His clothes are matted with filth and his hands are covered with white gloves and a terrible plastic crown since atop his head. He is blind, but I can see. The man moves his feet across the carpet, reaching out into nothingness. Slowly, out of the primordial hush of confusion, comes the outline of a couch. The crowned man caresses the furniture into sharp focus and the rest of the living room starts to manifest around him. A television, a window, a dresser table with a broken lamp, a doorway to the kitchen. Somewhere in the distance, a tram passes. The living room smells of filth and sweat and misery, but that scent is easily ignored. The crowned man presses his palms against the wall and feels his way through the doorway. He notices his palms are wet. From what he does not know, he is blind. The crowned man grips the edges of the doorframe and takes a step into the unknown. Cold tile meets his bare feet. He's used to the blindness of the living room. He never donned his heavy crown anywhere else, but the kitchen is a wholly different topography. Within three steps, he stubs his toe. It could be a chair, it could be a table, it could be the edge of a counter. He does not know. His outstretched hands grasp in the darkness, but they find nothing. In scared, shuffled steps, he moves through the vague world until finally, to a cry of joy, he finds the edge of the kitchen counter. Outlines, shapes, vague memories of where things probably are. A drunken vision of a kitchen breathes around a plastic king. He slides his hands across the counter until he meets blocky plastic, the espresso machine. The espresso machine with a dent at the water tank and a metal grating on top. On his descent, the plastic-crowned man spills a can of coffee beans, but his hands keep on moving. A bit more kitchen counter, then a drop. He presses his palms against the wall of the kitchen and starts to move. His hands are still wet. He does his best to ignore the cause. His fingers can still count the tiles and make sense of the world. His hands stop when they feel warmth. The back of the refrigerator becomes pronounced, but its dimensions are still a mystery. The dark-crowned man presses his palms against the side of the refrigerator in search of answers. He finds the handle. He steadies himself. The fridge is cool. The fridge is cool and I am starving. I order the flesh golem to place his hands in the fridge. I focus and I search and I keep my eyes shut. I find Tupperware. 
the man with the plastic crown, a separate entity, an avatar, that's the only way that I can see him. Everything beyond the world of the virtual is impossibly distant and lost in abstraction. When I reach into the Tupperware, I can feel echoes of grease and overcooked pasta. The fistful of spaghetti is inches away from the plastic crowned man. I can almost smell it. After just one handful of spaghetti, my eyes wet with joy. The food is real. It's cold and dry and overspiced, but it's real. I can feel the food traveling down my throat and settle in my stomach. It's real. It's real and I'm real and there's a world beyond my virtual shackles that's waiting for me. I watch the plastic crowned man shovel the spaghetti into his mouth and I feel my hunger being quelled but the relief is hardly filling. A single serving of leftovers cannot satiate a man starved for days. The plastic crowned man needs calories. I need calories. My aching fingers travel through the inside of the fridge until they find fuel. A stick of butter. At first I make an effort to find something to temper its taste, but my fridge is far too poorly stocked for a proper meal. I need calories. And calories I get. Like Saturn devouring a child, the plastic crowned man rips at the slick yellow block of nutrition until it is gone. To wash it down, he blindly fumbles his way past the coffee machine again until he reaches the nozzle of the sink. I can feel the cold metal of the faucet in my mouth. Any semblance of dignity leaves me and turns into a wandering spirit. I drink and I gag and I prepare to return to the horrible cartoon body, but just as I ready myself to rescind the control of the flesh golem, a familiar rush of adrenaline bolts through my veins. I start to doubt whether Simon can truly get me out of the virtual world. The crowned man exits the kitchen, but instead of making his way back to the living room, he caresses the walls until he reaches familiar ground. The front door of the apartment. With each step, the link that ties me to the man of flesh and bone grows fainter. The further he moves from the television, from the technology that binds him to the world of the simulated, the less of his world I feel. His hands work sluggishly at what I think is the door to the apartment. The keys, the latch, the handle of the door itself, it's all impossibly distant and abstract and my fingers burn with a sweaty pain, but the door finally opens. Beyond the doorframe, there is nothing but a storm of fading light. The limits of the VR headset keep me shackled. The crowned man leans out of the door into the unknown and he screams. I scream along with him. I beg and yell and plead and cry and the plastic crowned man screams my words, but it is all for naught. My voice does not echo through the stairwell. Instead, it's swallowed up by a sandstorm of static. When the blind man runs out of hope, he turns around and walks back through the hallway. He doesn't feel his way along, he simply walks. He doesn't care if he'll bump his horrid crown against the wall and end up in skull-shattering agony again. Pain doesn't mean anything to him anymore. I'm done, I say, opening my eyes. I'm a cartoon man again. The tips of my nailless fingers are still soaked with dark bruises and my body simmers with hurt. I don't know if the painkillers help, but I dry swallow another two pills. Simon? Can you hear me? I I'm done. The eternal sea of blue shimmers beneath my feet. The horizon is nothing but soft color and calm. Sorry there, uh, still in the process of figuring things out. Simon's voice booms from the heavens. There's a faint click in the distance. 
that echoes like thunder through a valley. I should see an exit now. A familiar phone booth, right in front of me. It doesn't appear out of nowhere. It's as if it's been in front of me all along and I just never noticed it. I try not to dig into that thought too much. I pick up the receiver and my body ceases to exist. I reappear in an office lobby with the distinct aesthetics of a daycare. A couple steps away from me is a beanbag chair resting next to a coffee machine. I walk with the grace of a car crash victim. The beanbag chair eases some of my aches. Yeah, uh, get comfortable. This might take a while. Simon's voice booms from the air vents. With no specific source of the voice to look at, I sink down in the beanbag and stare at the lobby's murals. The walls are covered with rows upon rows of smiling cartoon workers typing away at their computers. They look ecstatic to be at work. So it's a mess. A real mess. Corporate seems to be aware of the problem, but they're not doing anything about it. Spent a solid day trying to talk to someone, anyone, about getting you out, but no one would respond to my messages or emails. After a couple of hours of trying to chase an answer, my whole chat log and inbox got wiped. Apparently management has quarantined our entire team and shut down all of our accounts. Maybe it's to stop the spread of the Eggman code, and maybe they're just trying to sweep the whole thing under the rug. At least you're safe, though. Did you manage to... Um, feed? Yeah, I say, looking at my blackened fingers. There's something wrong with my hands. When I touched the walls in my apartment, they felt wet. That doesn't sound good. The voice booms. I expect Simon to follow the thought up with some assurances of safety, but he doesn't. I'm left staring at the office lobby mural. People of different races and creeds, a menagerie of human culture, all sitting behind computers. They sit in rows and they type and they look very excited about whatever work they are doing. I stare at the mural and try to imagine what it would be like to have to look at it every day for 15 years. How do I get out? I ask the ceiling. Right, about that. It's complicated, but doable, I think. Simon answers with some trepidation. So, what's keeping you stuck in the simulation, or more accurately, simulations, is a bug of the original Eggman thing. Egghead, I whisper, but he doesn't hear me. You're basically running a simulation within a simulation, like that DiCaprio movie. Right now, you're jacked into both the virtual experience from your QA backload, and you're also running that simulation through the virtual office of which you are currently the sole member of. The thought of another cartoon version existing, without wounds, somewhere by my virtual cubicle, makes me feel uneasy. I shake away the thought. I wouldn't completely give up on the idea of corporate getting you out somehow. The code you're running is quite unfriendly and worth studying. I'm sure they have someone focused on getting you out, but on the off chance that they don't, I think there's a way we can get both tiers of the simulation to restart and yank you back into your living room where you belong. All we need to do is shut down the Eggman code with something to counteract it. We need another virus. A virus? I ask. Yeah, finding the right one is going to take some time, though. This code is complete Greek to me, or Cyrillic, to be more accurate. I'm still figuring out how it ticks, but if I can find a virus that forces both simulations into a hard reset, I should be able to pull you out. Just need to find the right poison to take care of you. I get off the beanbag and walk through the office. My legs are bruised, but they are far too restless to be still. How long will that take? 
I ask, a stationary ceiling fan. An hour, two, he says, his voice slowly growing quieter. Three, I don't know. The moment I figure out what I'm looking for, it shouldn't be hard to find. The difficult part is making sense of the Eggman code and finding the right virus. The concept of time has left me long ago, but counting my rescue in hours rather than days brings some level of calm into my cartoon heart. That calm doesn't last. What if Professor Egghead comes back? I ask. Right. Uh, if Eggman comes back, or anything else goes wrong in a simulation, just scream help. Wrote a little script that's going to produce that phone booth you've become so familiar with. The simulation is also going to shift every 15 or so minutes just to make sure you're not stuck in one place for too long. I'm not sure if that helps prevent any unwelcome intrusions from the Eggman, but it's better to be safe than dead, right? Right, I say. The infantility of the office doesn't fade when I limp my way past the mural. The cubicles are fashioned to evoke happy cartoon animals, and half the chairs I see beyond the toy-filled desk are bouncing balls. In the center of the workspace, surrounded by an audience's worth of beanbag chairs, sits a giant game of Twister. I limp my way through the empty, gaudy office and try to imagine someone nearing retiring age sitting behind one of the computers. Before my imagination fully takes hold, I hear Simon's voice again. Alright Matt, first simulation change is about to tick down. Might feel uh, uncomfortable, but I'm sure you'll get used to it. I'm off to scour the cyberspace for that virus. If you need anything, just shout. I'll be... The transition is seamless enough to make me feel dizzy. I find myself standing in a boardroom with a long marble table with black leather chairs. There's a certainty in the back of my brain that I didn't just materialize out of nowhere. It's like I've been standing in the two-tone boardroom for hours and just noticed it. A large window paints a picture of Shanghai on a particularly bright night, but that picture is not static. It's drone footage. The world outside the window is moving. The dizziness raises through my throat, but I manage to avert my eyes before I waste any of my hard-won nutrition. With head lowered to the ground, I follow the black and white checkered floor out of the boardroom. Once the view of the ever-moving city of lights is gone, my stomach calms, yet the world beyond the office windows is far from stable. Everything around me is moving in incomprehensible ways that my brain circuitry can't make sense of. I keep my eyes glued to the tile, and then, as if I was standing somewhere completely different for hours, I find myself standing on a drab gray carpet. The shock of the ever-changing world around me wears off after a while, and the initial wave of nausea fizzes down into mild discomfort. Each new office I find myself in is accompanied by that ever-so-gentle flip of the stomach that comes from a car cresting a steep hill. The road ahead is undeniably confusing and I lack the will to fight it. I roam through the empty architecture and try to imagine people, real people, walking through the halls. The only faces that I can transpose on my abstract company, however, are those of the ugly hags that screamed at me in the Soviet hellscape. I trudge through the empty offices, desperately trying to rid my mind of those hateful gazes. The spaces around me are far too empty, far too artificial to find distraction, but soon my mind is gripped with a wholly different discomfort. I find myself in a lobby of grandiose art deco. A maze pattern, undoubtedly designed by a randomizer algorithm, fans out towards the sort of elevators where one would expect a bellhop. Roman columns, the color of night, hold up the impossibly high vaulted ceiling. 
Up above, far too high to see clearly, a kaleidoscope mosaic of muted colors shifts and stretches, never attaining a true shape. I walk alone, but the echo of my footsteps in a sprawling architecture is so resounding that I feel like I'm being followed. The confines of the elevator ease my paranoia of being pursued, and the gentle hum of the lift is pleasing to the ear. Yet when the elevator stops, and the gold-plated doors rumble open, I am seized by a sudden sense of impending doom. Deep in the confines of my cartoon chest, something feels rotten. I almost give in to my instinct to press a different floor on the panel, but then, on the white carpet of grey octagons, I see something that breaks the pattern. A drop of crimson. Hello? I ask, unnerved by the sound of my own voice. Is anyone there? Even from the confines of metal box, my voice lingers in the echoes of the halls. I hear no response. Instead, once all trace of my question descends into silence, the elevator's doors start to groan shut. I squeeze my body into the hall before the metal cage closes. In front of me lies a hallway full of open doors. There's more blood. The trail is most visceral at the far end of the hallway, where the white of the carpet is hidden beneath a thick layer of blood and guts. Whatever crawled its way through the corridor was on the edge of death, yet the snail's trail of viscera grows fainter the closer it moves towards the elevator. All along the bloody path, the office doors are open and the strains of red suggest entry. After each door, the trail of blood grows fainter until it turns into mere droplets of red around the elevator. The blood, however, is the only thing in the hallway. Staplers. Black and sleek with grooves of feathered wings, a dozen or so spent staplers rest by the doors of the offices. Hello? I ask. Am I alone in here? The echo of my voice is considerably more intrusive than it was in the elevator. Yet by the time my question is done bouncing around the grandiose halls, I hear a response. I hear a gurgle. Show yourself. I whisper, not wanting to face the repetition of my voice again. No company presents itself, but another gurgle squirms its way across the hallway. It's coming from the clean side of the corridor. It's coming from right around the corner. The staplers are heavy, heavy enough to serve as a weapon if need be. I arm myself with a bulky bit of office supply and creep my way to the end of the hall. Another gurgle comes from around the corner. I clutch the stapler in my frostbitten hands and prepare to defend myself, yet the moment I see her, the weapon drops from my hands. The greeter uniform is no longer blue, it is a dark shade of soaked crimson. Her clothes no longer fit her because her body is no longer that of a human. In her bloody hands she holds a stapler and where her midriff once was there is a sleeve of cheap metal. It connects her legs to her upper chest. The shop assistant is a poorly repaired version of her old self, but her dead hazel eyes and bright smile stay eternal. Looking through me, she gurgles again. A bubble of pink bloats up from behind her gapless teeth and then pops. Help! I yell. Before I can hear my voice bounce, I am elsewhere. I don't enter the new simulation gracefully. As if I was thrown by a merciless force, I slam into the edge of a table, turning it over. The impact knocks the breath out of me, and the sudden wave of nausea makes me feel like I am drowning. Mads, are you okay? What happened? The fluorescent light above me booms. I saw her. I squeak, struggling for breath. She was in the office. I saw the shop assistant. 
the world turns into a kaleidoscope of shapes, but unlike the ceiling of the majestic lobby, it doesn't inspire awe. It makes me vomit. Sally? Simon asks. I grip the stapler even tighter, expecting the torso-less shop assistant to leap out of the mess of geometry, yet she does not show. When breath finally returns to my lungs, my vision calms down. I am in a no-frills virtual office, not unlike the one I was forced to work in once upon a time. She was stapling herself back together. She was in the office, on the floor, stapling herself back together. This Eggman code is a real piece of work. The system must have somehow managed to follow you between the simulations. That's not good. The ceiling remarks. Definitely not good, but hopefully not relevant for long. I think I found exactly what we need to get you out. I clamber up to my feet and stare into the fluorescent lights as if being closer to them could bring me closer to freedom. I found a virus that can, I think, bring you out of the simulation. The lights buzz. Just going to be a bit tricky getting our hands on it. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L, Lucky J. Horton, Kus, Bob Kondrick, Chicken Mixer, Daniel Wengel, Mr. Creepypasta, Charlie Cooper, Dante Kincaid, and Matt. If you'd like to join these fine people and support the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Mike J. Langer. That's all for tonight. See you all on the next episode of Cabinet of Fever Dreams.